Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. And welcome to the fifth episode of Measurementality. This 10-episode series is sponsored by and in collaboration with the IEEE Standards Association, a collaborative organization where innovators raise the world's standards for technology. IEEE SA enables the collaborative exploration of emerging technologies, the identification of challenges and opportunities, and the development of recommendations, solutions, and technology standards that solve market-relevant problems. Before we begin, we want to remind you that all of the views and opinions of the guests of Measurementality are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers or affiliations or the views of IEEE or the IEEE Standards Association. If you're new to Measurementality, in this series, we interrogate the metrics of success in artificial intelligence by exploring the following topics. How is success measured today in AI? What positive future can we envision with AI? And finally, what measures of success can get us to that positive future? In this episode, we interview Sinead Bovell about our technological future and how we can build AI through intergenerational collaboration. Sinead is the founder and CEO of Way, a tech education company that prepares the next generation of leaders for a future with advanced technologies with a focus on non-traditional and minority markets. And now it is our pleasure to share this interview with all of you. We're on the line today with Sinead Bovell. Sinead, thank you so much for joining us. And we're gonna dive right in and talk about how you're seeing success being measured in artificial intelligence systems, especially with an eye towards youth. Thank you, thank you for having me. And I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. As per how AI is measured today and from the perspective of a young person and, and the other youth in my network, I would say, unfortunately, success is primarily measured based on profitability. Um, and a large part, in large part, because it is the private sector that's leading a lot of the innovation pipeline as it relates to artificial intelligence. Uh, so it's unfortunately quite a quantitative um, measurement towards AI, which isn't always helpful. Um, of course, public-private partnerships are kind of the ideal scenario, but right now uh, there isn't really that uh, equal balance. And then I would also say, if it is from more of a country level or from the public sector, it's unfortunately leaning a little bit more into an AI race. Who can be the first uh, to you know, succeed in this innovation or to continue to push the AI pipeline forward? not necessarily tying it back to overall societal well-being. Uh, so I would say currently as, as it stands today, AI isn't necessarily being measured uh, for the benefit of humanity and for societies and culture, um, more so for you know, bragging rights or uh, profitability. We've talked a bit on this show and especially in this Measurementality series with previous guests about how a lot of AI systems are optimizing for revenue, optimizing for money. You just said it again. We hear this over and over, and we have begun to understand the ways in which that can impact the different stakeholders of AI systems. So what we're curious about, based off of your work, is how do AI systems, as they're measured for success today, how do they impact youth? What does a, a revenue focus do to youth who use those AI systems? 
for young people, our frame of reference is climate change. So we are currently paying the price for decisions we weren't a part of and decisions we would have been on the completely opposite side of had we been a part of that conversation. And we're now cleaning up the consequences of decisions made by prior generations. And so when you examine it from that perspective and, and see all the damage that's been done in this lane, uh, that's the same approach we're taking with artificial intelligence. If we don't look in a longer term lens, if we don't prioritize people over profit, we will end up with another disaster uh, that youth are responsible from an existential standpoint of view to clean up. Uh, so that's, I would say, the, the kind of youth perspective. We've been here, we've seen it, it hasn't worked. Um, we need to move on from just a profit as, as the sole focus or, or GDP and numbers. And it sounds like to do that, uh, we need voices of more generations than perhaps have been uh, part of the conversation in the past. And this is something that I think a lot about, about how we do that intergenerational dialogue or transgenerational dialogue. Um, and, but I'm wondering before we get to how we might do that, uh, how are we seeing that playing out right now, maybe specifically around AI and climate change? Are those conversations happening or is there still a lot more uh, ground that needs to be made up? I would say it, it's really kind of company or government specific. The door to ensuring that youth always have a seat at the table isn't yet the kind of baseline foundational approach. Uh, we kind of have to squeeze our way in or mobilize on our own until our voices are heard. Um, which is unfortunate, um, but we are very action-oriented um, and we know what we're fighting for and fighting to protect and prevent. Um, but I'd say largely there are some organizations like the UN, for example, that's really mobilized around youth and ensured, ensuring that we have a seat at the table. But unfortunately, that's not uh, the baseline or the mainstream. Just a quick clarification, because I realized even when I was saying the word, I didn't uh, I feel like the, the definition can be a little slippery. When we talk about youth, or when you talk about youth specifically, who are you talking about? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I think there's kind of two ways to look at it. Uh, largely, the UN has their definition, it's usually about under 35, um, and that's kind of, I guess, a safe um, way to, to quantify youth. But I would also say people that are young in their career um, that don't necessarily have you know, access to certain tools. Those are all certain challenges that are shared across youth. Uh, so I think outside of just the quantitative uh, boundaries, I'd say uh, those are the qualitative measurements as well. Let's keep digging a little bit deeper in here because I'm, I'm curious who is making these decisions when youth aren't involved. And based off of what you've seen, Sinead, who is sitting at the table right now? I would say... When it comes to artificial intelligence, um, it is largely being led by, by the private sector. And in fact, it feels like there's about seven people in Silicon Valley coding our future. And conversations around that future aren't, are not only not accessible, but they're not digestible for people who don't speak tech, uh, which is a huge problem and a huge barrier to entry that even if we were invited, a lot of people don't have the tools to dissect and to understand um, or the skills to even properly leverage these tools. Uh, so I'd say that's kind of the first and foremost, the, like the biggest problem um, in, in the public sector. I think government has also kind of lagged behind when it comes to inclusivity of age. 
Um, you can look across any government across across the globe and you'll largely, I think, except for maybe some in the Netherlands, largely will be um, older generations, which is fine, um, but you need age inclusivity. You can't make decisions about a future in which you won't have to deal with the consequences. The decisions won't necessarily reflect those who actually have to live with them. Uh, so I think we still have a long way to go in terms of uh, age inclusivity. So let's discuss actually what this future could look like. And our next question that we ask all of our guests in this series is, what positive future do you envision for AI? And for this episode, with a specific eye towards youth and uh, the, the future for our youth. I would say in, in young people were largely excited about technology because we are born into it. And we know what access to technology, fair and equitable access to technology, its potential and what it can do and how it's allowed us to connect and to mobilize um, around systems that we are maybe locked out of. But what I think we're most excited about when it comes to advanced technologies like artificial intelligence um, is first and foremost a future where AI would work equally for everyone um, and effective for everyone which would largely mean that those in the rooms that are coding it are representative of the societies that will be using it. Um, and then the benefit and potential AI offers to improve access to critical services and, and infrastructure like healthcare and education. Um, AI does have a great potential to kind of lower those barriers to entry um, and ensure more fair access if it's used correctly and deployed responsibly. Um, and I think we're also excited about the potential for AI to force us to confront our past and our present in order to build systems, fair systems for the future. So our societal biases and all of those historical power imbalances that we haven't fully confronted as a society, there's still so much debate around them. But if you don't confront them, you risk coding them into the future. Um, which will end up you know, more disastrous uh, for everybody overall. So I think we're looking forward to having that past rectified and to righting those wrongs. Um, and then I'd say using AI as a teammate to help us solve some of those mass problems that we didn't create but are left to clean up, um, like climate change, like income inequality. Um, and then I would say, finally, I would say, uh, we're excited for AI to be a tool that, that we use um, and that benefits us, uh, not a tool that you know, uses us or simply benefits those who, who create it. So that's how I would say um, that's the positive future young people are excited about. Are there uh, specific either movements or uh, groups that you're seeing right now doing this work of creating that positive future, especially um, within the youth community? or communities, I should say? Yeah, I would say I do see like grassroots movements happening all over, especially when it comes to, to social media. Um, there's a lot of youth that are kind of mobilizing around uh, the Algorithmic Justice League, for example, is one um, that I know a lot of young people are excited about. Um, and even just things like leveraging Google Docs, uh, Slack channels, WhatsApp group chats um, to mobilize and, and to kind of unify our voices. Uh, and I know at my company at Way, we started our first you know, board just consisting of young people. Um, so for you know, the major decisions that we make, our ethical codes of conduct, those should all be designed with or at least by young people. Um, and so kind of putting our, our actions where our words are. 
Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of excitement around what AI can do, the benefits it could bring, um, and as well as open and honest conversations among youth about the harms of AI. And I noticed that when I'm in rooms with young people, those are confronted much more head on um, versus with other generations, you're kind of tipping toe around uh, these kind of challenging conversations, which won't get us anywhere in the end. Would you mind providing an example of maybe some sort of harm that AI causes that some of the younger folks that you've been in communication with are pretty aware of, but is something that maybe the older generations are either less aware of or less willing to talk about? Yeah, I'd say the ones that we're very open about definitely algorithmic bias from a gendered point of view or from a racial point of view. Uh, we see it every day in, in the tools that we use, whether it's social media posts that crop photos in favor of lighter skinned faces um, or augmented reality filters that tend to move towards Eurocentric features. We see these day in and day out in the activities that we do. Um, but they seem to have been missed by a lot of the, the decision makers, um, but, but not by us. So I would say that that's kind of um, one area that youth confront that we don't necessarily see as much confrontation amongst older generations. Um, and things like using artificial intelligence uh, in judicial systems. We are well aware of the biases that have happened historically in these systems. Um, and we are very much against deploying them unless we know that these harms have been mitigated. But that seems to not be necessarily the case across all generations. If it's possible to say, what are these, what are the barriers? Uh, is it, or I guess, what is the stigma against including youth within some of these conversations if stigma is um, what's holding these conversations back? I'd say if you just look at the traditional landscape the post-industrial revolution style infrastructures for, for main companies, young people are, are seen as, um, I guess, to, to bring a new bout of creativity or innovation um, or kind of like an ear to the street, not necessarily um, tapped into the, for their perspective, uh, their codes of ethics and, and their values. Um, we're there to really disrupt uh, or to help find new revenue channels or, or to make things kind of techie and fun and youthful, um, but not necessarily for our moral compass. Uh, we're not in those decision rooms where the principles of AI um, are happening um, or where you know, harms and benefits of AI are being discussed. Uh, we're only really invited to, to kind of disrupt, maybe drop a few ideas, um, but, but nothing kind of beyond that. I'm going to move us towards our final question that we ask, or at least the final theme that we ask questions around. And this is to encourage us to get specific and to not just talk high level about what this ideal future this ideal intergenerational future could look like. You gave some really amazing examples of what you hope to see in the future, especially in regards to AI working with us instead of against us. So I'm wondering if you have any ideas for what specific metrics we could attempt to measure and optimize for to find success and to see success in AI systems in that idealistic future that you laid out for us. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, metrics is always uh, a challenging one, but a very important one, uh, because what you measure is usually what you put the most effort towards. Um, but I would say societal well-being 
um, is something that needs to be included if we're going to measure the, the success and efficacy of artificial intelligence. Um, reduced income inequality, uh, I think, should be an important measurement, um, especially because we know the potential for AI to do the opposite if we aren't careful. Um, measuring the improvement rate of access to critical infrastructure, like education and healthcare or social services. Um, measuring the efficacy of, of AI itself, does it do what it claims to do? And do those who are evaluating it understand what they're evaluating? Um, and I would say measuring bias and harm um, is something that we do um, before things are deployed. Um, and then I would say measuring artificial intelligence and advanced technologies like it, their contribution to, to solving global challenges. Is it really helping? And that's where I think you can, you can see whether it's helping society on a whole or not. Um, are we tackling some of the biggest challenges of our time uh, with the tools that we've spent so much time and money building? And of course, once we figure out some of these domains and like figure out exactly what we're going to measure, we have to figure out how we're going to actually measure it. Um, and I'm wondering, perhaps within youth communities, if there are uh, new ways, um, perhaps even like more positively disruptive ways uh, to think about um, measurement and to how we actually uh, do it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think tapping into existing infrastructure um, to not fully reinvent the wheel, but to leverage and, and build any synergies, you know, we have really strict auditing processes for things like taxes um, and financial flows that have been in, in place for centuries. Why don't we treat something as important as artificial intelligence with the same respect? It needs an auditing process. Um, it needs a neutral party to, to try to identify right and wrong. Um, so tapping into those types of systems, expanding uh, what we see with current GDP measurement to include things like societal well-being um, and more qualitative factors. So if we have these big surveys and scorecards uh, to measure our country's success, um, why not simply start to switch out some of the categories uh, for longer term um, metrics and ones that are more helpful towards society as a whole, um, like measuring things like societal well-being. And some countries do do it. Um, it's few and far between, but there are countries that are a little bit, are a little bit more disruptive um, at making sure their evaluation of progress um, isn't just tied to, to GDP and, and trade. Um, it's tied to the health um, and well-being of their citizens, which I think is critical. When we talk about these qualitative, more subjective metrics like well-being and inequality, harm, things like that, the things that we would love to measure so that we can optimize for or against them, do you think that it's possible to measure those things in a holistic way that actually embodies the complex granularity of the, the human race and of humanity and what it means to be human? Do you feel hopeful about our potential for that? being realistic about the limitations of it. Um, for example, if we're measuring well-being from the perspective of whom, um, whose version of health and happiness do we use? Depending on where you live, your, the resources around you, the government structure and political infrastructure around you, um, health and well-being and happiness, that can largely be um, subjective, but we can also ask people. Like it, we often, um, believe that it has to be kind of coming from a certain group and just kind of dismantling, dismantling it throughout the, the society. But we can ask people, how do you feel 
at the end of your work week? How do you feel like this tool has helped um, or hindered um, your access to things? And then in, in terms of harm, I think we can put in um, safeguards the same way we've done for years with, with financial industries and um, the legal industry. We put in safeguards that we measure as a proxy um, and we do the best we can. I think it would be naive to assume that um, any form of a survey or GDP or evaluation metric is sufficient. Um, I think recognizing the limitations are critical, um, but doing the best we can to, to build proxies um, because right now I don't think we're even doing that at all. One thing I've heard in this conversation uh, is also the international scale that some of these conversations are happening, that um, sometimes I think we uh, get lulled into thinking this is a, a U.S. or, or Western-based conversation where it's obviously not. And I'm curious, maybe specifically around youth, but perhaps in general, uh, what you're seeing in terms of measuring success internationally in AI systems and then where we should be moving. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one thing that um, young people are very passionate about, that the kind of arbitrary borders we put up, um, arbitrary binary systems and categories aren't actually legitimate. Um, and those have kind of been disrupted by, by millennials and Gen Z, just kind of societal constructs of the past. Um, so I would say largely a youth are connected as much as possible by technology from a, from a global perspective. Um, and the needs and concerns of you know, fellow youth and peers across the world um, is certainly taken into account. Um, and we even see if there's an issue in one country, youth mobilizing and protesting in another country in support of it, um, or even protesting uh, via the social tools that we have. Um, so I would say that young people do take much more of a global perspective. Um, and are a little bit more skeptical of the arbitrary boundaries um, that have existed just as a result of history, but not necessarily anything concrete. And as usual, we can talk about these topics for so long, but we are reaching the end of our time together. So I will uh, ask you one final question to close, Sinead, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Our last question for you is, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about our future with AI as it relates to youth and intergenerational collaboration? Oh, that's a great question. And I would say, I feel optimistic because the potential problems AI could, build, could bring and some of the challenges that we're trying to solve today they're human-made challenges, which means humans have the potential to solve them. They're not unsolvable problems embedded in the fabric of the universe um, or something that humans are, it's out of reach for humanity. So I'm optimistic that we possess what it takes to, to right those wrongs and to get our future right. Um, and even if leaning into optimism um, could slightly seem a bit misleading, I think it's all we have. And if we only pay attention to the dark futures, it's really hard to walk down the path towards a brighter one. Janae, thank you so much for joining us today and also for all the work that you and your organization are doing to create that bright future. Thank you. Thanks so much for the great questions. I really enjoyed today's conversation.
We, of course, want to thank Sinead again for joining us today and for this wonderful conversation. And as always on Measurementality, we are honored to be joined by uh, John C. Havens from the IEEE Standards Association. John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. The honor, as usual, is all mine. And uh, John, I'm wondering if you want to get us started with just general thoughts that you're having after listening to this interview. Oh, sure. And thank you. Um, and I really enjoyed the interview. Uh, I think overall, you know, listening to Sinead at times, she had a passion, I'll, I'll say passion or intensity that I don't want to speak for anyone listening or bias. And by the way, they've already listened to the interview at this point. I don't know that I would say that she was angry at, at times. I think the passion of what she was saying that I felt and empathized with is the sense of what it feels like when you're not being heard or when you're not being listened to or, in her case, when you're not invited into the room. And having just on a personal level, and I'm speaking as John on a personal level, uh, been bullied as a kid. I remember when kids used to give me the silent treatment and these kids near Boston just apparently didn't have enough free time. <laughs> it was before the internet. So they would surround me and give me the silent treatment so I couldn't even leave. And that the intensity of not only not being listened to, but like knowing you're not being listened to. I, I don't know how to avoid on a personal level, certainly being deeply, deeply hurt which can manifest this anger. So none of this is, by the way, I'm, I'm obviously projecting my stuff onto her, but I was really, it really moved me because I have two kids. And when she talked about things, I'll just say that are factual. If young people aren't invited into rooms, and I think you both asked it, or I forget which of you asked, which was great. How do you define youth and 35 or 30 or under? If you don't have people that at that age range, certainly 30 or 35 or under in a room, then you are literally designing or building systems uh, for, for people who aren't in the room that need to be because they're the ones that are going to be using those systems. And she said that a number of times. And that, that to me is a message that really resonates. And I think as designers, anyone who designs, and that can be the product manufacturing designers, engineers, data scientists, but also policymakers, designing policy around these things. If you don't look around and see young people. In her case, she's also a young woman of color, right? So people that don't rep represent the people who are just going to use your stuff. Like it's not necessarily morality or ethics we're discussing. It's just who is in the room that's going to be picking up your thing or experiencing your algorithm. And if they aren't in the room, then you are literally not designing for them. So I just say all that because I didn't hear her say anything negative about one particular company or against companies in general, what I really heard was a very fervent appeal, which I couldn't agree with more, to hear that if young people aren't in the rooms for things that we're designing, then harm certainly will automatically happen because you just don't know from those people. And more importantly, why would we not want to have them in the room so that the stuff that we're building will honor them and benefit from their ideas? So it's not just, you know, like she said, and having worked in PR, we did this all the time. Let's get the teens in here to get some fun PR ideas. Well, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But I heard her also very clearly state we should be there at the beginning of any principles or design as well because their feedback is just as critical and seminal as anyone else. Yeah, definitely agreed on all of that. And uh, I, I always appreciate talking about youth's perspective 
on technology, uh, perhaps because I fall into Shanae's definition of youth as well. And so uh, I have a little bit of a, a personal attachment to this topic. But one thing that I, I did find interesting, both in the conversation with Shanae and also just in general, when I have conversations with my own colleagues and, and friends and people who use technology and, and feel like they are also being left out of the conversation, is I find that there's this juxtaposition of this hyper optimism, but also this hyper critique. And I think it's it's fascinating watching people, especially I would say probably like in, in Gen Z, so like the, the younger half of, of this definition of youth. And people are interacting with technology more than they ever have before. And so they're seeing actively the potential for harm much more than we've ever seen before. So it's it's allowing for this critique that we haven't really uh, discussed or normalized, I guess, in the technology conversation with some of these you know, older generations who have this more optimistic lens. But I think that that youth voices are also still able to harness this optimism, like Sinead was saying in her ideal version of the future too, and taking this critique and saying, okay, but what do we do? Making it actionable and saying, you know, here's how we actually fix some of these problems. And here's how we attempt to solve some of these harms that are being caused. So it's not just like this, this lost cause of critique where now tech is bad and let's never use it. It's saying like, let's be pragmatic and realistic and understand that techno technology can be harmful, but if we choose to be more intentional about it, if we invite more people to the table, if we have these intergenerational conversations, then we can move towards those positive, more optimistic futures. Yeah, I, and I think what I what I loved about this conversation is the getting to the how. Um, and uh, I know Sinead talked a lot about this mess um, that that we and I, you know, I speak as as a millennial, so on the older side of that definition, but um, that that we've inherited. I know that's a narrative that you know me and my friends have in terms of different systems, especially in terms of climate change, which that that resonated with me in terms of what Sinead was talking about. Um, but it's one thing to say, hey, we need youth at the table, or hey, we need you know group X at the table. Um, it's another thing to actually make that happen. Um, and I was uh, very hopeful with some of the examples that Sinead used at the UN level and beyond. And it also became clear to me that as we talk about measurement and uh, bringing voices into that conversation around how we measure, um, to what degree do we measure, what do we measure, that uh, there's still more work that needs to be done within those systems. Yeah, agreed. And, and um I guess that's my final point, just to say thank you both, you know, again, for a great interview. And thanks to Sinead, um, her organization, you know, focuses on teaching youth uh, about AI um, issues, machine learning. I think my sense is um, a lot of, and I'm not speaking about her organization, there's this focus, which is great, about either STEM or STEAM education, engineering or arts, along with the sciences, etc., I think what I'm also intrigued to explore is like, to your point, the action. What if it was a given that no meeting should happen, whether it's policy or design, unless there are, you know, three representatives from the youth, you know, whatever that definition is. Like if you're going to build whatever right now and it's like, hey, there's no engineers in the room. How are we going to build, you know, uh, X product or we're building an algorithm and there's no data scientists in the room. There, I think the logic is, well, we can't build something without the person who has the expertise. Let's call it the technical expertise. I want to build a staircase. I need a carpenter or the stairs will fall down, for lack of a better metaphor. 
Here, the thing about metrics that I want to point out is if, if myself, people my age or your guys' ages too, but you know, you're younger than I am, if there's sort of this logic of like, well, it'd be nice to have kids here, but we don't need to. I heard very loud and clear that then that won't work because that saying, we're not even interested in, uh, or not even that we're not interested, we're not going to take the time to try to see what it's like when we invite you in the room and hear what your metrics even are. Like having them in the room is one thing. Having them then say our metrics, and she made the point, like you said, Dylan, that the environment is the number one thing. Well, then when they start designing things, let's say a 30-year-old person has become CEO of the company. That could happen. They might say, all of our metrics are shifting. And our first design thing is to make sure we're improving the environment. Will they be seen as the, uh, the outlier? Will they be seen as a, a greenie or something? I don't know. But the point is, is that when you are ignoring someone's metrics, which they say, this is what we value, then you are automatically from a design standpoint, missing out on innovation. I just want to hammer that home. Innovation, I think, is sometimes defined as only the stuff which will bring fiscal profits, which I think a larger sense of responsible innovation. The responsible is no harm, no whatever else. I believe, this is John speaking, my opinion, uh, not necessarily all of IEEE, but doesn't responsible also mean or it should mean sustainability-wise, you have to be planning on improving the planet, people's mental health. And if that means that youth aren't in the room and you're automatically harming their mental health because they're being excluded, then let them in the room and justify it for a while in the sense of their ideas will bring innovation because they, by definition, will be new to you. Not just the old, like, I think you should put, you know, a color, paint it green. The kids will love the green color. But more in the sense of if they say, which I heard her say, the framing of these conversations, the metrics of success are the environment, then why would you build any AI product that you might sell to someone under age 35 and not prioritize that? That will hurt your sales. That will hurt, hurt long-term sustainability of your company. So I'm just saying that because like, you know, I, I know sometimes I can seem very uh, poetic and focused on like all these aspirational things, but the, it, these are facts that I heard. If they aren't in the room, then they also probably won't buy your stuff. So invite them in the room. That's why, if you need the justification, but then be prepared to be delighted. And when you start to honor the fact that these are new, new viewpoints, new perspectives, sure, but also new metrics that they are saying, these are the ones you have to prioritize. So anyway, thanks again. I really just uh, have a lot of great things to say about the interview and also her and special thanks to Sinead. Absolutely. Um, and thank you, John, for joining us as always. For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at radicalai.org backslash measurementality. You can search for the series, respond to our tweets, and get involved by using the hashtag measurementality on Twitter and other social media sites. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you for your support of the Radical AI podcast and the Measurementality series. Don't forget to join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay radical. <laughs>